Romans uh, 7, verses 7 to 25, are kind of one of the more, not enigmatic and, and not like hotly contested. Those that might be overstating it, but maybe it's not. Uh, one, of the, one of the trickier passages in the book, trickier meaning that like a lot of people uh, <coughs> are kind of divided on how exactly to interpret it. We're going to see as we work through it what I, what I mean. One commentator puts it this way. He says, Romans uh, 7, specifically verses 13 to 25, is one of the most disputed and controversial passages in the Bible. It's been argued by Christians for thousands of years. I hardly expect that I will be able to give the last word on it. And then he proceeds to write about 50 pages on those few uh, verses. And so, again, um, the, the, the reason why it's, it's tricky or enigmatic is, is largely because faithful Christians, literally ever since the early church, you know, a few centuries after Jesus' uh, Jesus's life, um, have, you know, that had different thoughts on how exactly to interpret it and what exactly Paul has in view as he's speaking in these verses. So we'll read it and you'll see. But the question that, that we're going to think through, and the question that Christian thinkers have been thinking through for centuries is, who is in view? Who, who exactly is in view in this passage of Romans 7? Who's Paul talking about? I mean, Paul is the author, so Paul's the one talking, and Paul is talking about himself. Uh, he uses first-person language a lot, I, uh, these kinds of things. But the question that people ask is, is Paul talking about himself right now as a Christian, as an apostle? Or is he talking about himself uh, in the past uh, as, as a non-Christian before he became uh, a Christian? Or is he talking about himself but kind of speaking metaphorically, uh, you know, for the nation of Israel or some other, uh, you know, group of, of people, but he's kind of using himself as a, as a stand-in. And so it's an interesting question that we'll think through together. Uh, I don't want it to be entirely heady. I want us to think about the application of this text, but there is some uh, kind of interpretational questions that we're going to have to ask as we, as we go through it. Guy, you know, guys have devoted entire Ph.D. Uh, dissertations to this text and this interpretation uh, here. And again, like I said, it's interesting because, I mean, oddly enough, from like so many of the commentators, authors, teachers, pastors that I read and listen to and things like that, it was almost like a 50-50 split. I like sent out group texts to a bunch of my buddies, other pastors, missionaries. I was like, what do you guys think about this text? And they would come back and it was like uncanny how, uh, how much of a 50-50 split it, it was. And so... We're going to read it and consider it, but we're going to consider questions like, because again, your answer to that question of, is Paul talking about himself now as a Christian, or is he talking about himself before as a non-Christian, is going to have implications for questions like, what should I expect my Christian life to look like? like how, how much should I expect to struggle with indwelling sin in my life now? Right? Should I expect to see victory over it? Should I expect to see defeat? If so, how much victory? How much defeat? And, and why? Right? If, if, uh, if I find myself sinning a lot, does that mean that I'm not a Christian? At what point should I start to doubt whether I'm a Christian if I see uh, sin and, and experience defeat uh, to sin in my life? There's a lot of questions, right? Um, that that, that your, the way that you interpret Romans 7 is going to speak to and going to inform a, a little bit. So, we're just going to read it all the way through and then pray and then, and then take some time to kind of work through it and think through it together. So we'll start in verse 7. It says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. 
Yet if, I had, if it had not been for the law, then I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to me to be death. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Well, did, did that, did, then, which is good, did it bring death to me? By no means. Ah, it was sin, producing death in me, through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might be come sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. I'm sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want to do, but the very thing that I hate is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, then I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do not do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law that's waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray your blessing on these next few minutes as we study your word together. We pray that you would open our eyes and illumine our hearts so that we can understand uh, and, and uh, hear you as you speak to us. We pray that we would be encouraged by your word and strengthened by your word. We just ask you to bless our time together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, yeah, th- so just quick recap of kind of where we're going, just to kind of set up this question, right? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Like, the reason why Paul asked that question, is the law sin, is because the first part of Romans 7 and then part of Romans 6 might leave the reader thinking that Paul is trying to say that the law is bad. The law is sinful, right? Uh, Romans 1 through 3, he kind of shares the gospel that all of humanity is, uh, is under sin, condemned by God, but Jesus has provided a way for us to be saved if we trust in him. Romans 4 and 5, he kind of starts to work out the implications of that. If you trust in Jesus, then you have been reconciled to God, right? Not through works, not through uh, religious, uh, you know, strivings, but by, by God's grace, when you trust in him, through faith. And if that's the case, then your salvation is secure. God will never let you go because God doesn't drop things. God is perfect and he is sovereign and he doesn't lose that which he has, has saved. And so in Romans 6, Paul starts to say, well then, if that's true, that, that we're saved by grace through faith and not works and Jesus will never let us go once he saves us, then, then, uh, 
then let's deal with this question about why not sin as much as I want since, God, since my, my salvation is secure. I can't lose my salvation anyway. Why not go ahead and sin all that I want? And Paul kind of explains that uh, that's not how salvation works. It's not just this like financial transaction where you lacked righteousness and then God gave you righteousness but left you exactly as you were before he did that. It's, it's that. God gives us righteousness that we are saved by, but then he also changes us from the, from the inside out, from our heart all the way out to our actions. God changes us and makes us more like Jesus. Before we were slaves to sin and slaves to the law, but now we're no longer slaves to sin, no longer slaves to the law. We've been set free to live for God apart from the the bondage of and the condemnation that comes from the law. So that leads to this question. Well, if God saved us from the law, if God saved us from the bondage to the law and from condemnation to the law, then I guess, Paul, what you're saying is that the law is bad, that the law is sin. If the law is this bad, you're saying saved by grace, not by law. So you're saying that the law is bad, but we, like Paul, we always thought that the law was good. What are we supposed to say? Like, is the law is the law sin. And so that's what Paul wants to work through in this text is showing that it's not that the law is bad. The law is good. The law is an expression of God's perfect, righteous character. So don't take, Paul's saying, don't take what I'm saying about grace and faith as, as uh, implying that the law is bad. I'm pro-law. Paul's like, I'm pro-law. I'm anti-sin, right? The law is good. It's sin that is bad. Not, not that the law is bad, but it's sin that's bad. That's kind of the, the main gist. And so, as we work through it, though, uh, we're going to look at this big question, because in the middle of the text, he's saying things like, you know, I have been sold as a slave to sin. I no longer do what I want. Sin is kind of overcoming me and kind of working through me. So, before we work verse by verse through it, I just want to consider that question, right? Consider, is this passage talking about Paul as a believer or as a non-believers as a, you know, in his previous life as an unbeliever. Quick show of hands, right? So, yeah, so I'll give three questions. So, uh, I'll say them all three first so, you, so that way you don't overcommit first. Who thinks it's a believer? Who thinks it's an unbeliever? And who has no idea or didn't even know this was a thing? Uh, so, show of hands, who thinks that Paul's talking about his life as a believer? Who thinks he's talking about his life as an unbeliever? Some for each. Who, who didn't even know that this was a thing? I'm, I'm excited to learn about it because I didn't even, I didn't even realize that this was, that this was an issue. So um, we will, I'll, I'll kind of make my best case for both sides, I think, first. Because again, a lot of pastors, a lot of teachers throughout, the, throughout all of church history have kind of argued one way or the other. Best, best argument for why this passage should be seen as Paul referring to himself as a believer. Well, first, it starts with just like, it's kind of the simplest, most plain reading of the text, right? Um, the, the language and specifically the verb tenses in the text seem to indicate that way, right? Uh, Paul starts by speaking in the past tense, right? Verse 7, um, you know, I, if, if it had not been previously for the law, then I would not have known what sin was. So that's like me back then. I would not have known, past tense. But sin, seizing an opportunity, produced past tense, in me, all kinds of, like, these are things that happened to me before, presumably in a past, past life, before I became a Christian. But in verse 14, there's a shift, right? You start seeing present tense language. I am of the flesh. I do not understand. I do not do what I want. Verse 17, it is sin that dwells present tense in me. Verse 18, I have the desire to do what I want. Verse 21, when I do what is right, 
presently, current right now, evil lies at hand. So the, 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 the argument for the Christian regenerate Paul here is that the language seems to imply present tense Paul. Another reason why people argue that this is Paul speaking of himself currently present tense as a believer um, is just some of the language that he speaks seems to be language that could only be true of a believer, right? Verse 15, I don't want to sin. Well, not wanting to sin is indicative of a, of a heart that's been regenerated and renewed and, and actually desires to, to walk with God. Verse 18, I want to do good. I have the desire to do what is right. Verse 22, I delight in the law of God. And not just delight in the law of God, but I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Like, it's really, genuinely, authentically what I feel deep in my heart. Verse 25, I serve the law of God. Right? A lot of the language that we see in this text seems to be language that could only be spoken rightly of a believer, right? Non-believers sin, but non-believers don't care about the fact that they're sinning like believers do. Non-believers don't have the, the godly desire for righteousness like believers have. I mean, yeah, even the question in verse 24, right? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul's question in verse 24 seems to imply that Paul is expecting someone to deliver him. Well, that's something that Christians think, right? Christians are the ones who anticipate that they will be delivered by God, are expecting to be delivered by God, and are going to ask a question like, when is this deliverance going to, to happen? Non-Christians don't necessarily ask that question. So verb tense, present tense, right? Language that seems to be true of believers. And just... It aligns, with our, it aligns with what we experience as human beings in the world, right? Show of hands, who here, since you became a Christian, has never committed one sin? Or has never struggled with sin at all, never experienced temptation, never suffered at all, even a little bit? Who here, since you became a Christian, life has been picture perfect for you from that moment until now? No, zero, right? So, that, so, so the, the, the argument that this is a regenerate Paul speaking of himself right now is that this is what we experience. We experience struggle with sin. We fight against our sin in our flesh, and it's hard. We experience temptation and suffering and fear and doubt. Just because our sin was forgiven by Jesus the moment that we trusted in him, just because we were saved in that moment from the penalty of sin, doesn't mean that we were saved exhaustively from the very presence of sin. That's something that doesn't happen until we meet Jesus face to face. Christians still experience the presence of sin, indwelling sin, temptation to sin. People sin against us, hurt us, these kinds of things. So the present tense, uh, you know, this is Paul talking about a believer. Those are kind of some of the arguments that they use. This is language that would only be spoken of of believers. Present tense, it comports with our reality of struggling and suffering with sin. Now, the, uh, the other guys that say this is pre-Christian, this is Paul speaking of his, of his life before as a non-believer, or Paul speaking about a metaphorical non-believer by using himself as kind of a stand-in for it, they're going to say, you know, They'll say, all right, past tense, present tense. That makes sense, right? He starts out verses 7 and following saying, speaking in the past tense, but then in first verse 14, there's a shift to the present tense. And they're going to say, that doesn't necessarily prove anything because there's a thing called uh, the dramatic, there's a tense called the dramatic present. 
And you're probably familiar with it. Even if you don't know it by name, you're probably uh, familiar with it. I'll tell you a story to illustrate. A few years ago, a few years ago, uh, it was a Sunday. I was here, I was at church uh, preaching, and then I had to go to Chesapeake to, to meet someone or do something. So I left here. Uh, I was driving uh, on Route 17 towards Chesapeake, and as I'm going over the Godwin Bridge, uh, like I'm kind of at the base of the Godwin Bridge, heading up it and uh, coming up over the top of the Godwin Bridge, real tall bridge. There's a, a, a car driving erratically. He's swerving right and, and left, like over across the lane lines and, and back. And then ultimately he kind of careens and smashes head-on collision into the car in front of me. And they together kind of come back and hit my car. It was a pretty bad accident that I was, that I was in. Now, that's a real story. That really happened. I can kind of flesh out the details for you uh, later offline if you like. But did you catch the change in verb tense in the story? Right? It started by saying, I left here, and then I turned and went on Route 17. But then at some point, you probably even noticed it, it said, and I, I'm driving up the hill, and there's this car coming down at me. It's like, pre- like the second, like the story switched from past tense to present tense, and that it, st- it all happened in the past. It didn't happen in the, in the present. That's called the dramatic present or the, yeah, the dramatic present or the narrative present. And so guys who think that this is Paul speaking about his former way of life are going to say Paul was employing that kind of rhetorical device here. He's using the present tense to describe something that happened in the, the past. What they'll also say, they'll, so, that, so they'll say, okay, uh, you know, argument one is it's present tense. Well, I've got a, re- a rebuttal for that. Argument number two is that Paul uses language that could only be spoken of believers about their regenerated and renewed desires that want to sin. They're like, okay, granted, but there's also language in this text that is, could only rightly be spoken of of non-believers, right? It's, it's, it, you, the, it cuts both ways, right? Verse 13, I am of the flesh and I'm sold into sin. It's not, it doesn't sound some, like something that's true of a believer right now. Verse 17, sin that dwells in me has completely overtaken me and controls me. Verse 23, sin is waging war against me and I am captive to it. I'm sold as a slave to it. Verse 24, I am a wretched man who is going to die. A lot of that language doesn't sound like it could rightly be spoken of of a believer. Or at the very least, it's difficult to reconcile with other language that we see in Romans 6 and 8, kind of buttressing right around this chapter, right? Romans 6, 4, Jesus raised us from the dead so that we can walk in newness of life, not slavery to sin. Verse six fourteen: sin will not have dominion over you. Well, chapter 7 seems to think sin will have dominion over me. Uh, six you've been set free from slavery to sin. So am I a slave to sin or am I not a slave? Right? Uh, chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, you've been set free from sin and death by Jesus and his spirit. Chapter 8, verse 9, you are not of the flesh, but of the spirit. So am I of the flesh or am I of the spirit? Have I, am I a slave to sin still or have I been set free from slavery to sin? Romans 7, if you look at Romans 6, 7, and 8 and read it all in one sitting, Romans 7 feels weird. It feels ominous. It feels darker than it should be. Romans 7, here's another interesting thought. There's a lot of language about the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. 
Talking about the life of a believer, living a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered life of victory over sin. The Holy Spirit's not mentioned once in, in this passage in Romans 7. Sounds like maybe it could be the description of a non-Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of him, who's struggling and fighting against sin and failing because he has been sold as a slave to sin. Right? Like, the Romans 7 sounds less like a less like a person who it's, you know, it sounds more terminal, right? It, it sounds like sin is running its course and, and destroying this person as opposed to Romans 6 and 8, which sound like a person who experiences sin but has, you know, has received from God the, the you know, the antidote for sin, as, as it were. Another, so another interesting thing about that this is a non-believer, not a believer. Uh, if you look back at Romans chapter 7, verses 5 through 6, we looked at it last week. I'll read them real quick. For, and look at verse 5 and then contrast it with verse 6, right? Th- think of those as two separate sentences describing two different phases of life, right? For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That's... that's Example, exhibit A. Exhibit B, but now we are released from the Spirit, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, when, when all of the New Testament, when all the Bible was written, there were no verse numbers, no chapter numbers. You just kind of read it as one big long thing. If you read through, if you read, if you read starting Romans chapter 7, verse 5, through the end of Romans 7, through the end of Romans 8, it kind of looks like, Romans 7, verses 5 and 6 are these two banner headlines, right? Before, we were living in the flesh and aroused by the law, and we were bearing fruit for death. But now, we've been released from the law, and we've been indwelt with the Spirit, not the old way of the written code. And then, it, kind of, it, it almost is like the rest of chapter 7 is an explanation of verse 5. The non-Christian who is living in the flesh. And then, all of Romans chapter 8 is kind of an explanation of Romans 7 verse 6, right? So it's like, here are the headlines and here are the explanations of those two respective headlines. And so that would seem to argue that Romans 7 is about an unregenerate person, a a non-believer. Now, after hearing that explanation, you're probably on the edge of your seat waiting for me to tell you which one I think it is. And again, like a lot of people I spoke with, they were they like were very confident in their particular position. Uh, I am not as confident on, of either side. I I think that a very compelling case can be made for either one of these. I'm not entirely, and both of them you can make a compelling case, and both of them have some objections that I, frankly are difficult to answer. I'm not sure which one is exactly right. I know that sounds like a cop out, but uh, I. I'm not entirely sure which side I come down on. But here's... So, so I don't have the strongest conviction in the world. Is this a believer? Is this not a believer? Here's where I do have a stronger conviction, though. And here's what I do think that we can and should all agree on, regardless of which side, which way that you want to interpret this, this passage. I do think that either interpretation, unbeliever, believer, right? Current Paul, former Paul, either side says something right and true about the Christian life, but either side, if applied wrongly or if taken too far, could imply 
something that is wrong or defective or even heretical. Right? The the this the pre this is Paul before his conversion. This is non-Christian Paul. So that side seems to imply that this can't be Paul as a believer because it sounds too carnal. It sounds too worldly. Uh, it sounds like Paul. It sounds like whoever's in view has been completely overcome by sin. So the implication is that Christians don't live like non-Christians. They their their life the, the life of a Christian. Uh, is to look distinctly different from that of a non-Christian. It's to be marked by holiness and repentance and loving God and hating sin. And all of that is 100% true. Christians are not dominated by sin in the same way that non-Christians are. Christian lives are marked by repentance. But if you take that too far, you could find yourself inadvertently thinking or believing that the reason why this chapter can't be describing a Christian is because Christians just don't sin. So any description of a person who's struggling with sin must, by definition, be an unbeliever and not a believer because Christians don't struggle with sin. As a matter of fact, I don't even think I sin anymore. And I, you know, none of the people that I look up to and respect and spend time with really sin either. So if anyone has sin in their life of any kind, then it's safe to assume that that person is not a Christian like I am. So that's wrong, right? That, I mean, I can't put any of that. That's wrong. Christians do still sin. It's very clear in 1 John 1 and 2. It's very clear in James chapter 3. Peter, the apostle, committed egregious sin after he became a Christian. He denied uh, Jesus uh, on the night when he was crucified. He had this big conflict with, with uh, Peter and Gal- or with Paul in Galatians 2 where he was committing uh, egregious sin. So, so Christians do still sin. They experience temptation and they struggle with indwelling sin. So if someone teaches that Christians should not expect to struggle with sin, or if someone interprets Romans 7 in a way that causes them to argue that Christians should not struggle with sin, then they're wrong. Like, they might have interpreted Romans 7 correctly, that it's about a non-believer, but, but they have uh, applied it in a way that is, that is wrong. Now, on the flip side, the post like this is a Christian, this is Paul talking about him, his current life as a Christian, right? The, the implications there that are, that are good and right and true is that um, we as Christians will and should expect to and should not be surprised when we experience besetting sins in our life. Temptation, struggling, suffering, things like that. And that's all 100% true. Christians do experience sin. When Jesus saves us, we're not magically removed from the presence of sin in our life and in the world around us. But if you take that interpretation too far, if you're not careful, you might find yourself thinking that since indwelling sin is an inevitable reality for me and for every Christian ever. And since I'm never going to fully eradicate sin from my life and see final comprehensive victory over it, then I guess there's not really a point in fighting it at all. No point. Why bother fighting a battle that you've been told from the beginning you'll never win? I might as well give up. I might as well just let sin run its course in my life and stop fighting against it. And that, 
or a person who uses Romans 7 to believe or teach that, they may have gotten the interpretation of Romans 7 right, that it's about a believer, but they've applied it wrongly and in a way that's detrimental to their life as a, as a believer. So, is this text talking about pre-conversion Paul and implying that the Christian life is not a life of total defeat and that Christians will never be completely overcome by sin? Yeah, it's entirely possible. Is it also then implying that Christians will never struggle with sin? Absolutely not. Or is the text talking about post-conversion Paul and implying that Christians do in fact struggle with sin in their lives and shouldn't be surprised when they do? It's entirely possible. Is it also then implying that Christians should then just give up and not bother with fighting against sin since it's a losing battle anyway? Absolutely not, right? See, the, 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 bo- both interpretations I think are viable provided that you guard against the errors that you might fall into if you take them too far. So, that concludes the introduction. Let's start the sermon. Just kidding. Uh, we, we are going to walk through it verse by verse now, but we'll do it, we'll do it fairly quickly with that kind of uh, view in mind. So, this is an interesting homework assignment, interesting conversation to have. Read it, have a quiet time on it this week. Think about what you think it is. I'm not sure that there's like a definite right or wrong answer, um, but it's an interesting Uh, case study to think about. But let's work our way through it. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Right? The big question. Like, Paul, since you're saying that we were saved from bondage to the law, I guess you're saying that the law is sin. And Paul says, by no means. Right? Meaning, it does not exist. Right? If I had not been, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known what sin even is. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So Paul's saying the law, the, the law, God didn't give the law specifically as a means for us to obey so that we would be righteous enough for God to love us. God gave the law to his people so that they would have a standard to look to and measure their own life by and realize rightly that they have not lived up to the standard that God gave them. The law is a device that God has given to us to expose the sinfulness of our sin. But not just that. It's not just that the law exposes our sin. It's also verse 8 that the law arouses our sin, makes us more sinful than we would have been before. Sin, seizing an opportunity uh, through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. So he's saying, uh, not only does the law show me that my coveting is bad by saying you shouldn't covet, the law actually causes the covetousness in me to become alive. It, It makes me covet more than I would have before I was told not to to cover to covet right the the right the the nature of a rule if someone comes to me and gives me a rule and says don't break this rule then then the the law kind of it arouses this you know well I guess if they told me not to do x y and z and if I do then I'll be punished with a b and c and A, B, and C is such a severe punishment, then that must mean that X, Y, and Z must be a really great, like, why would, why would they have bothered with such a severe punishment for that, for that sort of infraction? So maybe the infraction must be pretty good. So I'm going to do it anyway. Or besides, I'm so smart and so clever that I can probably do it and not get caught. Or if I do it and do get caught, then maybe I can find a loophole and I won't be, be punished. Right? Like the law actually makes us 
more sinful than we otherwise would have been, and then the law exposes us and condemns us for having sinned and violated the law. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Right? So, yeah, we mentioned this last week. So if the objection coming to Paul is, Paul, you are anti-law. Your gospel of grace and faith makes people hate the law, and it makes people sin more, right? The way that, if you want to have a society that's more righteous, then what you do is you take a law and you impose it on them, and they'll become righteous. And your, your gospel, where you take the law away, makes a society lawless and completely vile. And Paul says, uh-uh, it's the opposite, right? The, the law that you are imposing on people doesn't bring life and righteousness, it brings death. The law causes sin to spring up in our lives, which culminates in death. Verse 12, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So Paul's saying, it's not that the law is what's bad, right? Your message of salvation by the law will make people more sinful and more headed for death. And my message of, the, of salvation by grace through faith will make people more righteous and headed for eternal life. But that doesn't mean that the law is bad. That means that the law is good, but the law is simply activating what's bad in you, which is sin. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death? Right? If the law is good, then why did the law bring death? Paul says, that's not what happened. By no means. It wasn't the law that produced death in me. It was sin that produced death in me through that which is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Right? So, so the law is good, but the law exposes and activates and brings to the surface that which is bad, which is my sin, and that is what produces death in me. And then in verse 14, we see that shift, that, that switch to the, the narrative present, so, or the, to, the, to the present tense, which is either the narrative present or the, the actual present. Either way, from verses 14 and following, you're, we're either going to be talking about present tense Paul as a believer or past tense Paul as a non-believer. But either way, I would argue that it's still arguing the same main point, which is that the law is not bad, sin is what's bad. The law is not bad, it's sin that is bad. For we know that the law is spiritual and I am sold under flesh, or I, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. The thing that I do not want to do is what I do. I end up doing the thing that I hate doing. Sin is, sin is powerful. Sin gets in me. Sin wants to kill me. Sin wants to pull me away from following God that ends in eternal life and pull me toward prioritizing self and living for self that ends in death. Verse 16, now if I don't do what I want, then I agree with the law that it is good. I was saying, the law is, it's sin, it's not the law that's bad, it's sin that's bad. The law is good, sin is the thing that is bad. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Nothing good dwells in me, in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So Paul is continuing to reiterate how bad sin is, and how destructive of a force sin can be in our lives. How destructive a force it is in the lives of unbelievers, and how destructive it can still be in the lives of believers. It leads to death, and it, and it completely it affects the totality of who I am, right? My intellect, my emotions, 
my will, my words, my thoughts, my, my actions, my motivations, every, everything, the totality of who I am is depraved and affected by sin. Verse 19, which is kind of a restating of uh, what we saw up in verse 15, right? For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Some people read that and accuse Paul of blame shifting, right? I didn't really do it. It was, right, like, you can't blame me. It was sin that's in me. Like, God put the sin in, like, I am a good person, but it's just whatever happens to be in me that's kind of causing me to do things that I don't want to, right? Like, that's just my Irish temper, right? Or, I'm just Italian, what do you, you know, like, whatever. Like, everyone, you know, everyone has these excuses for why they did what they did that's something other than or something short of, oh, I just, I sinned and I need to, to repent and turn from it. And so, Paul's not excusing himself or making making excuses saying that it's not really me who did it rather what he's saying is uh he's reinforcing the main theme of the passage which is that sin is bad the law is not bad sin is bad sin is utterly destructive it will kill you it will destroy you it will pull you away it'll grab your will by the reins and pull it away and cause you to want to and then to actually execute uh, sin against God. Sin is a destructive force, right? It's not just a label that we use to describe behaviors that are less than ideal. Sin is a living, breathing force that gets in you and wages war on you and wants to kill you, which is exactly what we see in verses 21 and following. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil, sin lies close at hand. It's language, that's re- language reminiscent of Paul's, or of God's words to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, right? Abel brings an offering that is good and righteous, and Cain brings an offering that's bad and is rejected, and he gets mad, and God says, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, you will be accepted. But if you don't, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to kill you and to rule over you, but you have to kill it and rule over it. God is telling Cain exactly what Paul is articulating here. Right? Cain, sorry, Charlie, but your dad sinned. And now the world is filled with sin and has fallen. And so sin is now, it's not... Uh, it's not somewhere over there. Sin is lying right here close at hand. It's crouching at your door. It's lying in wait, waiting to spring on you and jump on you and attack you and kill you like a lion stalking in the prey for a, whatever they, a gazelle, right, that has no idea that it's, that it's there. That's what sin does. It's an apex predator that wants to kill and destroy. And the only way for you to not be killed by sin is to attack it first. And it's kill or be killed. Sin is kill or be killed. You can't coexist with it. You can't make an arrangement with it to where you can both occupy the same space and still be okay. You kill it or it will kill you. Verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, 
But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Sin is in me. It's in me and it's waging war against me. It wants to take me captive. It wants to kill me. It wants to destroy me. My life as a Christian is is one of uh, fighting against sin until the day that I die. Because I know that if I don't, then it's going to attack me and kill me. Apart from the grace of God, apart from the person and work of Jesus, apart from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit inside of me, I will be attacked by, overcome by, and killed by sin. Which is why Paul says in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body? Like, I am going to die. Sin is going to destroy me. I am going to welcome it and let it happen. And I'm going to die and be separated from God. I need someone to deliver me. I need someone to save me from this body of death. Here's who's going to save Paul. Here's who saves us from this body of death that we are living in and walking around with. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the one who will deliver us from this body of death. Jesus is the one who sees us having been overcome by sin, crushed under the weight of and condemnation of the law. Jesus is the one who in that moment draws near to us, who takes our sin upon his shoulders, who bears the punishment for sin that was meant for us. Jesus is the one who gives us his righteousness so that God can look at us and accept us as if we had lived the perfect life of Christ. Jesus is the one who gets up out of the grave in victory over Satan and sin and death so that we can have new life and resurrection power to live with him. Jesus is the one who saves us and keeps us and will never let us go. All we have to do is trust in him, turn from ourselves and trust in Jesus. Thanks be to God that Jesus Christ our Lord has delivered us from sin, from this body of death. But even, even still, right? Even still, after you know having been saved by Jesus from this body of death, there still is this lingering. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my my mind, but with my flesh, I serve like there still is something in me. I'm still always going to be experiencing the presence of sin, besetting sin, indwelling sin that I'm going to have to be fighting against. If you speak with someone who seems to be under the impression that they have arrived, they don't struggle with sin anymore the way that other people do or the way that they used to. We all as Christians strive to serve the law of God with our mind, but with our, there's something in us that, that struggles with sin and experiences temptation. And that's just the nature of the Christian life, is walking with Jesus, repenting of sin, trusting in Him, fighting for repentance and for holiness, knowing full well that we experience and we struggle with sin in our, in our flesh. Friends, whether this text is about Paul, 
before he became a Christian and describes the life of a person without the Holy Spirit who's overcome by sin or whether the text is about Paul as a Christian, as an apostle, who despite being a Christian is still fighting against indwelling sin in his life, whichever interpretation is correct, which I'm not entirely sure which one is, but whichever one is, the main idea is still the same, which is that the law of God is not bad. The law of God is not your enemy. Sin is bad. Sin is your enemy. Sin is dangerous. Sin wants to kill you, and sin will kill you. You will die because of your sin, because of how it wells up inside of you and causes you to rebel against God and causes you to love and worship other things instead of God. Sin wants to kill you and sin will kill you unless you trust in Jesus. Unless you turn from your sin, trust in Jesus, look to him, run to him, hold fast to him. Jesus is your only hope. And he will never turn away anyone who looks to him in repentant faith. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to us to deliver us from this body of death. Lord, we acknowledge that apart from your Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, we have no hope of obeying you or living a life that is pleasing to you. And yet we thank you, Lord, that you came to us. You died for us. You forgave us and saved us and gave us your Holy Spirit so that we could walk with you. And Jesus, we pray that you would help us to walk with you in newness of life for your glory and for our joy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.